Stories Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. try to erase you, the more you appear. Is there a single human system that cooperates? Is it ever possible to ask a heart or a brain to stop doing something and have it comply? Will there ever come a time when we can heal ourselves from the pain of our own perceptions? Or better yet, block ourselves from feeling any of it in the first place? What if I'd never perceived you? What if I'd been able to filter out your perfect face before it ever entered my consciousness? The first time I saw your stupid, beautiful face, I saw it through a cloud of steam as you made a latte or a macchiato or some other creamy caffeinated delight. It was early enough in the morning that it was still dark outside. It was raining and Neil Young was on the stereo and the whole scene was so cosy and captivating. It was all I could do not to call into work and spend the rest of the day curled up in the corner eating slices of pie and willing you to come over and talk to me. I was too studious back then to take time off work unless it was absolutely necessary. But I lingered in front of the counter as you made my drink, sending silent messages for you to look up and say something to me. And you did. Mind if I add cinnamon to this? You asked as the high wine of the steamer wound down. Huh? I responded and immediately became self-conscious at the way my jaw dangled open at the end of the word. I snapped it shut and attempted to smile as you repeated, Your coffee? You held up the cup. Do you mind if I add cinnamon? It really brings out the more subtle flavors in the blend. I should have told you to keep your hipster shit to yourself, snatch my coffee and shot you a sexy glance as I disappeared into the early morning rain, but instead I said, Oh yeah, sounds lovely. And to make matters worse, after you'd powdered the surface of my drink and as you were securing the lid to hand it to me, I asked, How do you know so much about coffee? The internet. I wanted to scream at my past self. Who cares where he learned it? You're the youngest editor in the history of your publishers. You've got a master's degree. You look great in clothes. You have two thirds of a novel written. Who cares what this coffee Adonis knows? Get out of here and get out of here now. But I didn't. I lingered and listened to you describe the volatile oils and organic acids like the future of humanity depended on how thoroughly you explained the process to me. Come back tomorrow and I'll make you something really special, you said with a wink. And of course, I returned the next day. Radiohead was playing when I showed up, an even bigger weakness of mine, and you were wearing the blue beanie that I always wanted to tell you to throw away because despite your argument that it brings out your eyes, which it does, It also makes you look like an adult baby. 
The special drink you promised me was somehow bitter and tasteless at the same time, but I showered you with enough compliments that you asked me for my number before I left, and if there is a record for how fast a phone number has been shared, I broke it that morning. It took you long enough to use my number that I had no idea who you were when your first text appeared one afternoon as I was finishing a client meeting. Hey, it's Luke, it simply said. After a solid three minutes of racking my brain to figure out where I'd ever met a Luke, I finally remembered you tossing it out as I'd left the day I'd given you my number. I'd never returned to that coffee shop, too nervous to seem desperate and then too humiliated that you hadn't reached out. And so you faded into the ether along with all the other attractive baristas I'd encountered over the years. But there you were, wooing me like the wordsmith you are. Oh, hey, stranger. I left off the punctuation for a little extra casual cool I hoped you'd see in me. I added the stranger so you'd know that it had been far too long since I'd given you my number, but I hoped the oh hey was warm enough that it circled back to the casual cool side of me who didn't care that much. I was a sophisticated woman in the city. I didn't pine for men, no matter how much their muscles rippled under their t-shirts as they pulled shots or how much charisma they'd ooze despite not being that bright or interesting. Sorry for the radio silence, you atoned. Got a new job, been so crazy. Buy you a drink? I rooted around in the dustiest corners of my soul for the strength to turn you down, but only found a few weak affirmations and justifications. And so I said, yes, I'd love to. And so it began. Four days later, I found myself hovering over a complicated cocktail in a precarious glass, attempting to look alluring as I sipped at the rim like a lamprey. What do you think? You asked, nodding self-assuredly at your suggestion. Mmm, I purred and swallowed. It tasted the way my Aunt Barb's bathroom had smelled, but I dabbed my mouth demurely and opened it to lie. I love it. Is that lavender I taste? Your face lit up like a five-year-old on Christmas, then darkened as I guessed the floral note incorrectly. (laughs) Close, but no! You paused to see if I wanted to guess again, but when I just shrugged, you generously shared the secret ingredient. Catnip. I fought the urge to ask if it was safe to infuse a cocktail with feline hallucinogens and instead said, Oh, right. Uh, Of course. Of course and took another cloying sip. So what's your new job? I asked to take the attention off my deficiencies on the subject of mixology. Oh, it's pretty sweet. You lit up again and proceeded to tell me about how your cousin had convinced you to get your personal training certification so you could start a gym together. So now we're just hustling and looking for investors, but uh, I've got a couple of private clients in the meantime. Oh yeah? That sounds great. I responded enthusiastically and quickly searched my brain for a follow-up question. Do you like Pilates? Oh, God, no, you shot back and launched into a diatribe about how everyone has always thought the core muscles were the most important, but actually that new research shows that engaging your core too often has been linked with some neurological conditions. And despite knowing with 100% certainty that what you were saying wasn't true... I continued to smile and nod and agree until I drained my drink and then ordered a good old, old old-fashioned 
to avoid any further assaults to my senses. Eventually, I was able to steer you in the direction of movies you'd seen recently. And by some divine miracle, we had both seen the same indie comedy and had both loved it, and so I was able to milk that topic for the remaining hour and a half of our date. Once I had sacrificed every second of the film to the gods of half-interesting conversation, we paid the check, I called an Uber, gave you a hug, and... never saw you again. Is what I wish had happened. Of course I slept with you. Of course I did. My justification at the time was that it was my reward for allowing you to numb my mind for two and a half hours. But the truth was that I really liked you. You had so much charisma, it was impossible not to get ground into mush by the way you held the base of your glass or the way you looked slightly sideways when you joked. Your laugh was truly infectious. Your face was flawless and you moved through the world so effortlessly. I just wanted to climb inside of you and root around until some of it rubbed off on me. And you kept doing that thing where you find reasons to touch me throughout the night and and each point of contact was more electrifying than the last. So by the time the night was over and you gave me that sly side look and asked if I wanted to come over, I was powerless to say no. And of course the sex was terrible. Of course it was. But it didn't stop me from floating out of your apartment like I just met my soulmate. And it definitely didn't curb my heartache when you failed to text me the next day. Or the day after. Or four additional days after that. But then... There you were again. Hey, babe. Babe. I was instantly putty less than putty. I was a pool. I managed to contain myself for 30 minutes before I responded. Hey, you. Fast forward two days and I'm pushing past a crowd of men playing something I later learned is called cornhole to find you and four of your friends at a picnic table at the back of a brewery you recommended I meet you at. You failed to mention it would be a group even and just before I could turn around and leave... You were at my side, throwing a perfectly sculpted arm around my shoulder and pulling me in deeper and deeper into your vortex, where there was no light or air or gravity and where I was at risk of floating or free-falling forever. Hey, babe! You greeted me cheerfully and I slammed back to earth. I found myself back in an ultra-bright room encircled by the laughter of men as it echoed off the barren walls and I suppressed the fact that I hate beer and beer culture as I extended a hand to meet your friends who all had names that resembled outdoor activities. Doesn't she have a cool accent? You asked Hunter and Hunter agreed wholeheartedly. You smiled down at me, tucked me firmly in the grotto where your bicep and forearm meet. 
and then unwound your arm and sat down without offering to get me a beer. I stood alone at the bar until someone took my order for a dry cider, then rejoined you, Hunter, Tanner, the one whose name I forgot and the one with the nickname Jazz, for a long night of mostly being ignored. The few times someone asked me a question, my voice seemed to get caught up and carried off by the ever-increasing volume of the crowded space, and the conversation would end as quickly as it began. I compensated for my isolation by having way too many ciders. So when you called me beautiful at the end of the night and invited me over for a second round of unfulfilling adult fun, I followed you even further into the abyss. Over the next four months, we had a total of seven dates, if you could even call them that. And by the end of the seventh, I was so enraptured by you. So fully and completely bound by your spell, it was all I could do not to profess my love after every breath that escaped my lips in your presence. On the seventh date, we met Jazz and Tanner and a woman named Riley to watch a dragon boat race that Riley's girlfriend was rowing in. And when you introduced me to Riley as your girl, I felt a beam of light shoot up and out of my core and into the heavens where I was reunited with the divine and the universe bestowed me with all the love and peace and contentment it has to offer. I was smitten to the point of no return. I spent my days distracted and waiting for you to reach out and my nights either drinking too much so that I didn't care if you never text or called or attempting to channel all of those huge and complicated feelings into my writing, which was impossible to the point of being absurd. <laughs> On very rare occasions, my phone would ding and my heart would shoot up and make violent contact with the back of my throat at the sight of your name on my phone. What would follow would almost always resemble something like this. Hey. Hey, you. Always casual but sexy. WYD. I'd pause to come up with an activity that I thought made me seem exciting yet available, interesting but not intimidating, and strong but still soft. It was usually something along the lines of attempting to bake sourdough for the millionth time. Lol. Which is a bold-faced lie because I have never and wouldn't ever attempt to bake, but it felt like the type of thing that you would love and maybe invite yourself over to join in. Of course, that would mean I would have to find an excuse for why there wasn't a loaf of fresh bread baking in the oven when you arrived. But I was willing to cross that bridge when I came to it. Instead of encouraging me in my pursuits or asking any type of additional question or sometimes even responding at all, you'd usually kill the conversation with a simple call. And that would be the end of the romance for the evening. And don't get me wrong, you weren't totally insufferable at all times. The night you opened up about your relationship with your dad was nice. And the time you stopped at my office to drop me off that cupcake as a surprise was sweet. Granted, it was some kind of healthy cupcake that was almost inedible, but it was the thought that counted. And sometimes when you laughed, I could see a nine-year-old version of yourself come through. So carefree and innocent and sweet. 
and I cherished you in those moments. But then you said it, and it all came crashing down. We were on our eighth date, and it was a rare date where it was just you and me and you didn't insist on bringing your merry pack of bros. I'd invited you over for dinner knowing full well that my chicken piccata is irresistible. I was hoping it would cause you to fall madly in love with me, propose marriage, and we get started on conceiving our twins, Maple and Palomino. It was the first time you'd been in my apartment, as I'd always been the one to make the trip to the dank basement unit you shared with a man twice or three times your age, who I am positive was dealing drugs and insisted on calling me Toots. I was excited for you to see my view of the bridge, smell the incense I'd brought back from Mexico City and experience my 800 thread count sheets. I thought it would give you a deeper insight into how great I am and would inspire you to want to get to know me more and then ultimately you would love me as much as I loved you. And you were great that night. You were openly impressed by my home and you loved my chicken piccata. You consumed it with a passion you'd yet to unleash on me and I was so happy to watch you enjoy it as I carried the weight of our conversation and topped off our wine glasses and it never ran empty. After dinner, you wandered around my apartment as I rinsed the dishes and I laughed as you pretended to wear the antlers I'd found in the flea market on the coast and told you about my grandfather when you discovered the stained glass kaleidoscope he'd made. You'd wandered over to my bookshelf by the time I was done with the dishes and I flinched as you pulled out my copy of On the Road. This book changed my life. You said it so solemnly it was all I could do to keep my half-digested chicken piccata from rising up in my throat. After pressing the book to your heart for a moment to further illustrate your connection with it, you placed it back on the shelf and pulled out another. My heart leapt as I read the title on the binding. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And I held my breath and waited for you to tell me that it had changed your life too. I never got this one. You stared at it dumbly for a beat. Kind of boring, don't you think? I snatched the novel from your hands with the urgency of a mother protecting a child from a predator. And as much as I wanted to defend the beloved book, I was struck speechless for a moment. Jeez, babe. You shot me the pained look of an adolescent boy who's never been told no. <laughs> well, it is. To Kill a Mockingbird is not boring. I managed to say in a voice just above a whisper. <laughs> um, it is. <laughs> you said it with so much self-assuredness. I mean, it's just like a kid and some guy named Boo, which is pretty much the dumbest name. And I didn't even make it through the court part because it was just so dull. Your best friend's name is Jazz. The words flew out of my mouth before I could stop myself, but you were so engrossed in your weak annihilation of my favourite book, you didn't hear me. They also say the N-word in it, which is like, hello, super uncool. You threw up your hands and widened your eyes to challenge me to prove you wrong. And that was the precise moment it all came rushing back. 
It didn't slide back in through cracks over time or come to be in bursts and starts. It sliced through so decisively, my body registered what I needed to do before it had even been communicated to my mind. I'm going to kill you. My words were so void of love or humanity, I was frightened for a half second before I realised that I had been the one to say them. (laughs) Oh, that's real mature. You counted and cocked your head in a way that was so obnoxious it was all I could do not to knock it off your body. But I knew better. It had been a while. But I knew what I needed to do. It all came rushing back as you stood there mouth agape like a codfish in the middle of your awful, witless face, and I knew what I needed to do. No, babe, I said, and recognised my voice, but still managed to give myself chills. You don't understand. I sat my cherished novel safely back on the shelf then stepped towards you until you were an arm's length away. We locked eyes, then I stretched out my hands and shoved you, softly at first, but with enough pressure to express the rage that was rapidly unlocking and clawing its way up from where I'd stored it long ago. I'm going to fucking kill you. I shoved you again, my hands flat against your sumptuous pecs, and then again and again you stumbled back with each push too stunned to react, and after three more rapid jabs we were standing in my kitchen next to the island where I'd so lovingly prepared your dinner an hour before. Uh, Okay, you're wigging out, so I'm gonna go, you said and rolled your eyes. I'm not wigging out you absolute moron I took a giant step towards you so we were chest to chest and I pressed my face up into yours until I'd backed you against the cabinets behind you babe you are like totally wigging you argued completely unaware of how little life you had left to live I just don't like that book okay can you chill but that's what you didn't understand And what I'm trying to tell you now, it wasn't about you not liking the book. Well, it was. But it was what not liking the book meant to me. And the balance of everything inside of me and everything that makes up my universe. It's funny to say now, but I'd completely forgotten about my darkness. And it was thanks to Harper Lee. Well, Harper Lee and a really good child psychiatrist. After my dad had to pull me off Jessica Snyder as I held her face under the creek behind our house and she very nearly died, my parents found Dr Linda. And Dr Linda and Harper Lee saved me. And saved dozens of lives and my would-be victims too, as it turns out. It only took Dr. Linda about 20 minutes to figure out that treating me like a child, even at nine years old, would be a mistake. And if she was going to help me manage my darkness, she would need to be as honest and assertive as she could legally be with a child in her care. She talked to me about my desire to hurt other people as if she was chatting with a girlfriend over drinks. 
She let me express that side of myself honestly and she didn't flinch at my glee as I described gruesome things I wanted to do to the other boys and girls and adults once I was big enough. And after time, she taught me how to love something more than I loved the idea of watching the life drain from behind another human's eyes. After I told her I liked reading, she started bringing me books that she thought I'd enjoy. There was no agenda in her recommendations, no hidden lessons in managing anger or tapping into empathy. She just shared the novels she knew would occupy my time, otherwise spent torturing and potentially killing my peers. And that's how I met To Kill a Mockingbird, which in turn taught me how to love. I had only ever read stories about young love or the trials and tribulations of being an adolescent or giggling girls on adventures with their female friends, none of which I could relate to in the slightest. And so the depth and humanity and heroism in To Kill a Mockingbird absolutely gripped me and showed me a way to channel all of my rage and disappointment and frustration into something beautiful, something I could love. And so I started writing, and the more I wrote, the more I loved it. And eventually that love started to spill out onto other things like riding my bike and listening to music. And then one day I realized I also loved people. And as I stood there, looking into your mostly vacant eyes as my hand groped behind me for the largest and longest chef's knife. It dawned on me that I'd only ever learned to love the rest of the world once I'd learned to exploit it as fodder for my writing. But that's as good reason to love something as any, I guess. But I think I would have kept the darkness buried. And I would have continued to observe the world through the lens of love had it not been for you. Had you continued to hold sway with your main character charm, I would have followed that plot line in whatever direction it demanded. And let's be honest, the end of the story would have been some trite message about me learning to love myself. And I would have worked harder and looked better to get revenge on you for treating me so poorly. But you would have still been alive. But instead, you had to say the one thing that would conjure the darkness. And so the alternate ending was me slamming the knife I just used to prepare your dinner into the side of your neck and dragging it across to unleash a semicircle of gore just below your stunned, stupid face. You spent the last seconds of your life as dull and clueless as you'd always been. And it was euphoric to watch your fear and confusion in death. And not just because I truly love to kill, which I do, but because it broke the spell and set me free. And my God, what had I seen in you for all those months? had I seen in anyone I'd shared my time with over the years, especially the ones who'd eventually shared my bed? How many minutes and hours had I wasted enraptured by their narratives when I should have been the protagonist all along? I am more compelling and intricate 
and subtle than any of the morons I have given my time to, and I shudder to think how much time I've lost. My storyline needs to be developed, and I'm grateful for you, dear Luke, for writing the course. You are my first, and you will remain my muse. No matter how many coffee shops I enter, and how many dim and beautiful boys I lure, and how many breaths I steal, or tender arteries I sever, or eyes I watch fade from cerulean to grey once there is no life left to light them. You will always be the one. The one insufferable enough to set my sparkle free. Courtney Eck and narrated by Miss Lee Rose Neville. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt, as well as a behind the scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join at Patreon slash Please Leave Pod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at Please Leave Pod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. 